You know, sometimes I'm not quite certain what's worse. Some of the insanity that goes on in the charismania world, the new apostolic reformation and and some of these televangelists and the hyper charismatics that we see out there. Or some of the tradition laden theology that was imported from Europe after the Reformation. I, I think it's probably the charismania stuff, because that, some of that, a lot of that, is just plain old fashioned heretical. It stands outside of the pale of Christian orthodoxy altogether. But a lot of what came over uh, from Europe, from the European state church, in Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, um, Anglicanism, Methodism, is so laden down with human tradition that was necessary to make it fit into the state church system. That it too is, there's a lot of error there. I mean, it's, it's really difficult to know whether they're, what they're teaching is true or not, unless, unless you've learned to do as I've had to do, and that is to open your Bible for yourself, to learn to read it um, contextually, exegetically, regularly, and prayerfully. It is the Word of God, as recorded by the apostles, that is so important for you and I. It's less important what Luther taught than what Paul taught. It's less important what Calvin taught than what Peter and John and James teach. And I think you would agree with me on that. But we have this um, theology that's come over and has really taken root in the last couple of decades in evangelicalism so that even independent evangelical churches espouse a lot of the Reformed, Calvinistic, and even Lutheran type of teaching and thinking that it's it's right in line with the Bible, and a lot of it is. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of it that's not. And we have to be discerning Christians. We have we can't just cave in to a tradition. In Hebrews chapter two, verse one, it says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Heard what? The gospel. From that we've heard the word of God through the Son. What we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the apostles. 
God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. If the ministry of the letter, the law, was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit, Paul asked in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, what's important, what's before you and I today in this series, this is part three of that series, on uh, no preaching law, exclamation mark. What is the role of the Mosaic law in the sinner's conversion and thereafter in the spiritual maturity and sanctification of the believer? And I've said before, this is no small concern. It's not merely... Um, fodder for rigorous intellectual debate among scholars. No, if you are a professing Christian, please hear me now. If you are a professing Christian, how you answer this question will reveal whether or not you currently possess a saving view of the gospel or if you've been bewitched by the traditions of theological systems. Not to mention the wolves out there in the charismania world. What we want is the pure milk of the word. What I insist upon for my own life and that of my wife and family and children and grandchildren is that we hear the voice of God in the text. There are theology books and things that are helpful. But at the core, at the center of our life, has to be this passion, this deep, abiding passion to hear the voice of God in the text of Scripture. But the charismatic world says you don't need to hear it in the Scripture. You just need to hear it. You can have some subjective, emotionally driven experience and say, the Lord told me, yada, yada, yada. And you don't know. Some people say, well, I, I feel like the Lord is telling me today. Well, no, 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 no. If you feel like the Lord is telling you something, I don't want to hear it. I want to know the Lord is telling you something. <laughs> Especially if it has something to do with me. <laughs> And so, if you want to share something with me, I, I need to know that you've actually heard from the Lord. And the only way I know that you've heard from the Lord is because you are going to point me to chapter and verse within its context and share something with me that will be edifying, encouraging, or convicting. I want us both to have heard from God at that point. That's not to say it isn't experiential. That's not to say that it isn't existential. It's powerful. It applies to our life. It's just transformative. I just don't have to wonder if what you're feeling is last night's pizza or a word from the Lord. I don't have to go there with you. I mean, I don't know if we've ever needed an objective word of God more than we need that today, right? Nobody knows who's who or who's telling the truth anymore. And that's pretty much true as far as theology is concerned, too, these days. 
So how you answer this question, what is the role of the Mosaic Law in the sinner's conversion and afterward in the believer's life, will determine whether you are in one of three spiritual states that I'm going to share with you now. First of all, it will determine whether you are a have a profession of faith that is not saving. That you have embraced some false gospel to your eternal peril. And worse yet, or worse yet, you are a false teacher of that false gospel. This is what Paul was speaking to in Galatians chapter 1. When he said, If we, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than anyone than the one excuse me the one we preach to you let them be under god's curse and then he says it a second time as we have already said so now i say again if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted let them be under god's curse that's a horrible prospect isn't it and I'm telling you, beloved, it burdens my heart daily, hourly. I, I'm not trying to sound, you know, uh, virtuous or uh, <laughs> I'm not looking for sympathy. I, I'm just saying that it's a, it should be a burden for every Christian. That there is so much falsehood being touted in the name of Jesus today especially in America, in the name of greed and exploitation and oppression and lies, the bald-faced lies by some of these people that are so charismatic, that are so charming, even endearing, so articulate, so attractive, some of them. Good speed. I mean, if they were business people in some other realm, they would be millionaires many times over. If they own car dealerships, they'd own eight different car dealerships. But they're touting religion, and they're doing it in the name of Jesus, and that ought to make us sick to our stomach, and, and it should burden us for the lives that are being destroyed. So how you answer this question about the role of the law in your life is a big deal. How you answer it could mean, this, this first one, that you are a false teacher or you have embraced the false teaching and thinking that you're a Christian, you're not even a Christian, and there is no worse state to be in. Now, it could be that you are, in fact, a genuine Christian with genuine faith, and you are simply bewitched by false teaching. It could be, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it is entirely possible to be a genuine Christian, to have had a genuine, authentic conversion experience, and then come under some kind of false teaching and be bewitched. So that you begin to compromise your own experience. You begin to compromise your own conversion, your own faith, your own understanding of Jesus Christ. That's your saving understanding of Jesus Christ. You begin to compromise it. You notice that he says here, are you so foolish after beginning my beans of the Spirit? These people had a, a legitimate, authentic conversion by means of the Spirit. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Let me give you one very real example here. I was looking on a certain website recently, and they had laid out the three uses of the law, according to Calvin. And one of the uses of the law was that you would use it as a rule of life for your sanctification. That you'd bring yourself under the Ten Commandments and use it as a rule of life. Now, they said that oh no 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 we uh, we don't um, we don't think that it's a uh, a system of salvation. You don't you don't come under the law as a system of salvation, but you can come under the law as a means of sanctification. We would never say you have to get saved by the law. We just say you have to live according to the law, by the law. And so you end up having to um, keep the Sabbath as Sunday. You end up having to abide by the tithing laws. You end up have to uh, deal with certain... Um, uh, dietary laws at times as well. In some cases. You have to treat this service as if it's a, a temple service with a hierarchy. You treat your ministers as some kind of an elevated rabbinic clergy. Very Judaistic. But that's exactly what Paul's dealing with here in Galatians. You get a good Protestant view of the book of Galatians. They'll say, oh yeah, no, you can't be justified by works of the law. But Paul's not saying that. Paul's not saying they were converted by, they were under the threat that they would be converted. They're already converted. They're already saved. He's telling them they're bewitched and foolish because having had an authentic conversion, 
by means of the Spirit, by, by hearing with faith, they are now willingly bringing themselves under law. And that, he says, is another gospel, quite clearly. That's um, something we don't want to admit real quickly, but that's exactly what this website was saying that you should do. Let's see if I can pull it up real quick here. The three uses of the law. Its first function is to be a mirror reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. The law is meant to give the knowledge of the sin, of sin, I can go with that, and by showing us our need of pardon, our danger of damnation to lead us into repentance and faith. Really? When did the apostles preach the law prior to the gospel? A second function, the civil use, is to restrain evil in civil society, especially if there are uh, civil codes attached to it. Think of it. They're flirting with theonomy here, which is a heresy. They're, they're flirting with turning the country into a theocracy. And his third function is to guide the regenerate, the believer, into the good works that God has prepared for them. They're completely taking Ephesians 2.10 out of context. The law tells God's children what will please their Heavenly Father. It could be called their family code. Really? Christ was speaking of this third use of the law when he said that those who became his disciples must be taught to do all he commanded them. So, so Jesus was telling the apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel because all authority was now with him. Go into all the world, carry out the great commission to all the world and preach the law and teach them to keep the law. See where this goes? It's so subtle, beloved. And you come under this kind of tradition. And you your, your joy gets sapped. Your energy gets sapped. Your shoulders get rounded. I had a young uh, couple at lunch one day tell me that their pastor had told them that they shouldn't spend time with their family on Sunday. They shouldn't spend any time recreating on Sunday. They should be home in a state of prayer and study uh, and preparing for the Sabbath evening service because Sunday was the Sabbath. I remember turning to them and saying, I can't think of anything more heinous than turning the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ into a legal system. Because that's exactly what was happening. And they were attending a Baptist church, by the way. That's where this stuff goes. And then it all starts rolling downhill. They're also being told they couldn't be really justified. They couldn't be justified unless they drank wine in the uh, um, communion cup. And so it went. So you can be you can be a Christian and be 
under bewitchment. And then, of course, finally, the good news is, is that you could be, depending on how you answer that question, my question earlier, what is the role of the law in converting sinners and in the believer's life? It could be that you say, well, the answer is that I walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh, according to Paul in Galatians 5.16. He summarizes his thought in Galatians 5.16 by saying, quote, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He didn't say, recite to yourself the moral law every day, the Ten Commandments every day. Hang the Ten Commandments above your uh, on your bedroom wall so it's the first thing you see in the morning the last thing you see at night. Be sure to recite them in the liturgy every week. No, he said, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. I don't know how much plainer Paul could make it, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law in any form, folks. Well, no, we're not under the civil law, they will say. No, 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 we're not under the ceremonial law, but we are under the moral law. That's the title that they give for the Ten Commandments. And that becomes their entry point for legalism. Mark my words, Paul says in Galatians 5.2, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, there's not much threat of being circ people being circumcised today, but the principle he's talking about here that if you think you can keep one part of the law and avoid the rest, you're kidding yourself. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Paul says in Galatians 5.3, Again, I declare to you, every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So you can't say, well, no, I don't, I don't obey the ceremonial law. I don't obey the civil law anymore, but I, but I keep the moral law. By the way, nowhere in the Bible is the law divided up into three parts like that. There's simply the law. It wasn't until Thomas Aquinas, the Roman Catholic theologian, divided it up into three separate pieces that the Reformers took that and ran with it in order to justify their theology of infant baptism because they wanted to bring forth the law of circumcision. See how muddled this gets? You see how messy this gets? You take a simple devotion to Christ that brings joy and freedom and liberty, love of God and neighbor, a longing for personal holiness, and you begin to muddy it up with all this European church-state tradition and theology 
from the Westminster Confession, the Book of Concord, the um, 39 articles of the, of the Anglican Church, the 1689 Reformed Baptist Convention, Confession, I should say, the Savoy Confession. You bring all these creeds, confessions, and, and teachings over from the European State Church, and you try to dump them on new converts, just like these guys were doing to the converts in Galatia. Don't let them do that to you. Don't let the charismaniacs tell you that somehow they have a word from the Lord for you or that you have to tithe or if you give them a thousand dollars that God's going to open up a window of blessing and pour out abundance upon you or that this is your hour, this is your moment that if you will act in faith and send at least a hundred dollars now don't go there. Don't buy into this nonsense that they teach on TV and on the radios and on YouTube. But don't buy into the European state church theologies either. At least not on a wholesale basis. Be discerning. Open your Bible. You aren't required to keep an open mind. As even Chris Roseborough says, keep an open Bible, not an open mind. Good phrase. So, there is a restraining influence. Let me uh, just touch on that for a minute. There is a restraining influence of the Spirit. So, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. There is the restraining influence. So many times, you'll hear theologians use this big $25 word to scare you, You'll say, oh, well, you're, you're talking about antinomianism. If you don't come under law, then you're an antinomian. And, of course, that's supposed to send shivers down your back and make you think, oh, my goodness, I'm an antinomian, whatever that is. Antinomian, it just means against law. Someone who's against law. And what was happening in the, in the church state in Europe is that second or third generation after the Reformation, when the state church had become filled with nominalism, where most of the people in the church were good citizens of the state, and therefore good citizens, members of the church by baptism, but were not regenerate people, guess what happened? All kinds of moral decadence began to occur. Drunkenness, whoremongering, violence, exploitation, thievery within the church. And then that was filtering out even further into society. And in England, the parliament freaked out, called the Westminster divines together, and said, we have to do something about this. So they spent some time developing the Westminster Confession of Faith in which they integrated a bunch of law and a bunch of law-keeping to serve as a restraining influence because the law will restrain you can't get somebody to read the ten commandments every week or every day and and not have them have some form of moral restraint 
So they're hoping to do a, to restrain the moral decline within the society by having the Westminster Confession of Faith be integrated in with a bunch of law using uh, proof text scriptures to support it. Quite frankly, that's it. <laughs> and then that was imported over here. And today, the Westminster Confession of Faith is treated like it's some kind of an inspired set of golden tablets that fell down from heaven. I, I, you know, confessions and creeds can be useful, but they can't be trusted. You still need to go back to your Bible. So the restraining influence is the spirit. It's not a matter of law versus lawlessness. And see, and that's how the law teachers like to frame it. They want to tell you, well, if you're not if you're not coming under the law of Moses, if you're not under the moral law, then you're just an antinomian. You're in the lawlessness. They don't understand that that's a false dichotomy. Uh, they, no one teaches lawlessness. The, the, the gospel, in fact provides in the gift of the Spirit the greatest means of moral restraint leading to even greater holiness of character after the model of an image of Jesus than the law could have ever provided. The law only provided hypocrisy, only created hypocrites. The Pharisees were simply the standard bearer of the best you get under the law. But in the spirit, when we're walking in the spirit of holiness, in the image of Jesus, the moral character image of Jesus, the very life of Jesus is being worked out in your character. There's no greater restraint for sin than that. So that we don't do whatever we want. I mean, when Paul preached this gospel, there he was accused of saying, well, why not we just sin then so that, so that grace may abound? Paul wasn't saying that. He was saying that the law had been changed locations from tablets of stone to minds and hearts. Now, let me just close by today by touching on John chapter 15 beginning with verse 26. I want to show you, I'll give you an overview here, of the work of the Spirit as being the marching orders for the apostles. As you know, in, in the, the, the upper room, John 14, 15, and 16, carries the, records the discourse between Jesus and the disciples in the upper room just hours before he was to suffer. And Jesus is gathered them together and he's beginning to instruct them on the things that will occur and what they must do in his departure, after his departure. And so in John chapter 14, he tells them that he's going away, but he's going to come back for them. 
He reminds them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14 later, he begins in verse 15 to introduce them to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is to come. John chapter 15, he speaks to them as the true vine. The vine being the symbol of Israel. So Jesus is saying very clearly there that he is Israel. He is true Israel and they are the branches and the necessity for them to abide in him. And then John fifteen twenty six, he says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. About me, he said. And you also must, imperative, testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So the ministry of the Spirit that's going to be at work in the apostles' lives in the coming days at Pen after Pentecost will be a ministry of testifying about Jesus. Now what Jesus was not doing in the upper room was reciting the Ten Commandments to them. He was not reciting Leviticus to them. He was not going over the Torah with them. He was not going over the rabbinic traditions with them. He was not instructing them to use Malachi chapter 3 as a means of funding the church. He was not instructing them as to what the church building should look like in the future. What Jesus was instructing them to do is to walk in the Spirit, to rely upon the Spirit, to be ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3.6 He was training his disciples to be ministers of the new covenant. Hallelujah. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away, he says in verse 1 to 16. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, whose time? The time in which this religious system, this apostate religious system, this murderous religious system who killed the prophets, are now about to kill the Lord Jesus, will turn on them, the apostles, to kill them as well. I have told you this so that when the time comes, their time comes, you will Remember that I warned you about them. See, it's very specific. Them, there. This is a definite body of people. And he's speaking primarily of apostate Judaism. Not to mention later the expansion into Rome and the Roman paganism. Primarily speaking of apostate Judaism. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, I'm going away so that 
I can send you the Spirit, the Advocate, the Helper, the Comforter, and replicate my life in each one of you. I will be with you like I've never been with you before. My very life will be in you. The Spirit of Christ will be in you. You will be marked out of the world, from the world, not by law, but by the Spirit. Period. But by my very presence. No longer will dietary laws, Sabbath laws, feasts, sacrifices at the temple... These things will no longer define you as God's people. What will define you as God's people is my spirit dwelling within you, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And when he comes, the spirit will do three things. He will prove the world to be in the wrong. About what? They'll be wrong-headed. The spirit will show that the world and its religious systems, by the way, are wrong-headed about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me. That's the essence of sin. Not that they don't keep the Ten Commandments, because I hear people all the time say, well, this person was a good person. They kept the Ten Commandments. Oh, did they now? No. Sin is about unbelief, and unbelief is always focused on Jesus Christ. Sin, because they did not believe in me. Now, to say the simple prayer because you're trying to escape the wrath of the law, the simple sinner's prayer is not to believe in Jesus. We're talking about embracing his life, his teaching, the totality of his teaching, his death and resurrection as the sole cause of your salvation, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost as a result of his intercession between he and the Father, and the work of the new covenant at work in your life and you as a new creation in Jesus Christ alone. That you belong into the new realm of the Spirit. No longer to this present evil age. About righteousness, because I, go, I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to the Father and lives ever lives to intercede for us and that is the sole cause of our righteousness please hear me beloved don't let anybody tell you it's because you have successfully or because you attempt to keep the ten commandments or you try to keep the moral law or some kind of other sabbath laws or feasts or things like that that somehow that you are righteous you are righteous because Jesus shed his blood. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He sent the Spirit to dwell in you and that he now ever lives to make intercession for you. And he can save and only he can save you to the uttermost. Period. Your righteousness is tied to Jesus Christ. Period. Not Moses. Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no more. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the Holy Spirit's going to prove the world wrong about those three things. 
They cannot, let me, let me put it this way, you cannot have a right thinking, orthodox understanding, biblical view of sin, righteousness, and judgment, except by the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Period. End of story. Only the Spirit can, can, can convict you of sin and convince you of the right things regarding sin, not the law. The law can convict you about sin, but you'll never understand, you'll never truly understand your sin apart from and the nature of sin, apart from the work of the Spirit through the gospel. Or about the righteousness that is so desperately needed, but is so wonderfully granted and imputed to you, and practically being worked out in your character through the ministry of the Spirit. And then finally about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Listen, we live in an eschatological age right now. The prince of this world has been condemned. The lake of fire for he and his angels and all those who ally with him await him. Just like the fullness of and the full realization of our salvation awaits us. There's coming a day. There's coming a final day. The day of Christ. But that judgment, that day, for you who are in Christ, is already predicated on something that has already happened on your behalf in the finished work of Christ. But the devil already stands condemned. The prince of this world already stands condemned. This age that we live in, this present evil age, has been judged. The prince of this age has been condemned. And we are in a now and not yet time. Now are we the children of God. And it has not yet been fully realized what we shall be. But we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 1-3 We are now the children of God. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So we'll pause there. I hope you're taking these things to heart. Very important. I'm going to continue for probably at least one more sermon on this topic so that we get a good summary, a good review, a good understanding of what's at stake, and that we can rejoice together in the gospel of our salvation. We can rejoice in what God has accomplished this and for us on our behalf in Christ, and we can break free from the chains and the fetters of needless traditions, needless doctrines of men, by either the misguided or the heretics of whom there are so many today. So take heart. Be of good courage. The Lord is with you. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved child. Amen. <laughs>